The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, yes, much more than gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You can underst- who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall have, be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Did God really say... We started this series a couple of weeks ago. Is God's word really reliable? A couple of weeks ago, we we began by talking about the insidiousness of doubt. In James chapter 1, starting in verse 6, it says, You must believe and not doubt. Because a one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. That's pretty strong. But that kind of describes much of our culture today, does it not? Why is that important? Why... Is it important not to doubt? Why is it important to know that God's word is reliable, that God's word is true? Because the word, the world, excuse me, as we've been talking about for the last couple weeks here, pushed by Satan, is trying to convince everyone that God's word is irrelevant. And therefore, God himself is irrelevant. And according to a man by the name of Yuval Noah Harari, how many of you heard that name? Look it up. Very important name. Chief advisor to Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum, the organization that's trying to create this new world order. No joke. He says, quote, We have no souls and spirits, but have become programmable and hackable animals who can have their thoughts programmed and controlled. Folks, we, if we do not have a rock to stand on, if we do not have a firm foundation to stand on, we are going to be standing on sifting sand. And that's the way the majority of the world is going, standing on sifting sand. You know, the more you delve into Scripture the more you realize that the Bible is an amazing book, an absolutely incredible book. And as we began seeing last week, though the Bible doesn't choose to speak in scientific jargon or terminology, there is no scientific inaccuracy. In fact, we see true science verifying over and over again the reliability of Scripture. I was reading the other day about a man by the name of Herbert Spencer. He died in 1903, and received, but he received many prizes for his scientific research. 
He was actually a contemporary of Charles Darwin and was actually already talking about evolution before Darwin actually wrote his book on, on that theory. But one of the things that he was noted for and hailed as a genius for was that he discovered the five categories of the knowable. The five categories of the noble, and that is everything that can be known can be placed into five categories. And he proclaimed this, quote, everything that is, is either time, force, action, space, or matter. Everything can fit in there somewhere, time, force, action, space, or matter. Now, I don't think he realized that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, that's time, God, that's force, created, that's action, the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. Isn't that amazing? God laid that all out brilliantly in the very first verse of the Bible. Yeah, but you say, well, I, I don't know that the Bible we have in our hands today is really accurate. How do we know that that is what the original said? I mean, there are so many copies and so many different translations. Obviously, stuff has changed, right? Well, I want to look at that a little bit this morning, not spending the whole message on that, because that's been one of the greatest false claims, uh, misinformation, if you will, about the Bible. First of all, the Bible is translated from the original languages. It's not translated from language to language, from English to Portuguese to French to German or whatever. Bible scholars always translate from the original languages of Hebrew, in which the Old Testament was written, and the Greek in which the New Testament was written, and they go back to and use the most reliable texts. And secondly, there were stringent guidelines for the scribes, those who made the copies of the various manuscripts that were put into place. There were a group of Hebrew scholars called the Talmudim. And they were responsible for the transmission of the Old Testament text from A.D. 100 to A.D. 500. Because of their great reverence for Scripture, in their, in their care, they put into place a very precise process of making copies. Number one, the synagogue scrolls had to be written on specially prepared skins of clean animals. That was important for them, and fastened with strings taken from clean animals. Each skin had to contain a certain number of columns. Each column had to have between 48 and 60 lines and be 30 letters wide. The spacing between the consonants, the sections, and the books were precise, measured by either hairs or threads. The ink had to be black and prepared with a specific recipe. The transcribers could not devote, uh, deviate, excuse me, in any manner. No words could be written for memory. They had to copy every single word as they saw it. Now, after the Talmudim came the Masoretes who oversaw the Old Testament copies from A.D. 500 to 900. And they added more requirements. They numbered the verses, the words, and the letters of each book, and they calculated the midpoint of each one. And when a scroll was complete, independent sources counted the number of words and the syllables, forward and then backward, then from the middle of the text, to make sure the exact number had been preserved. 
And the proofreading of, of those manuscripts had to be done within 30 days, and up to two mistakes on a page could be corrected. But if there were three mistakes on a page, that condemned that whole particular manuscript or that whole particular copy, and they would actually destroy it. And then there's the question of the manuscript dates. Up until 1947, it wasn't that long ago, um, the oldest of these Old Testament manuscripts that, it, that we had were from the 9th century, about 900 A.D. But in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the Middle East, which were Old Testament manuscripts dating back to 100 B.C. That's a thousand years earlier than the most recent ones that w- than we had. And when they compared those with what we already had, a thousand years difference, they found an amazing 95% of the texts are identical with only a few variations, and most of them were spelling. See, God made sure that His Word was preserved down through the ages and that they are reliable. What about the New Testament? Well, historians uh, for all types of ancient literature, not only the scripture, but all types of ancient literature, they, they have three criteria that they use to evaluate the reliability of that historical text. Number one, the number of manuscripts available to us now. Obviously, the more the manuscripts, the better the ability to compare and reconstruct the original. Secondly, the time interval between the date of the original and the date of that particular manuscript. The shorter the time interval, the closer to the actual events and eyewitnesses, and fewer times the manuscripts would have been recopied. And then the third is the quality of those manuscripts. The more legible the words on the page, the more accurate it would be to read and compare with other texts. That's kind of an obvious one. So, for example, historians have a high degree of confidence that Julius Caesar conquered Gaul. Why? Because we have ten ancient manuscript copies of Caesar's writings on the Gaelic Wars. We don't have any original, but we have ten of the copies. We have a high degree of the confidence that Socrates lived, taught, and was executed by drinking hemlock. Why? Because we have seven ancient manuscripts copied from Plato's Tetralogies in which it documents the death of his beloved mentor and teacher. Again, we have no originals, we have those copies. Now take a look at this chart a minute. We see here, Caesar in his writings wrote about 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest copies we have is 900 A.D. There's a thousand years difference, and we've got ten of those copies. No question about the reliability. Plato wrote 42 to 347 B.C., The earliest copy is A.D. 900, 1,200 years between the writing and the earliest copy. Seven copies of those, again, few question that. Tacitus, A.D. 100, copy A.D. 1100, 1,000 years between, we got 20 copies of those. Uh, Thucydides, 46 to 400 B.C., A.D. 900, the earliest copy, 1,300 years with eight copies. Aristotle, 384 to 322, Earliest copy, 1100 A.D., 1400 years between the original and the copies that we have, 49 copies. No one questions those. They're reliable. Now, of all ancient Greek and Latin literature, Homer's The Iliad, 
ranks next to the New Testament having the greatest amount of manuscript testimony. So Homer, writing the Iliad in 900 B.C., the earliest copy is 400 B.C., so there's only 500 years. That's pretty good compared to the others. Only 500 years difference, and there's 643 copies of those. No question about that. So what do we have for the New Testament? How does the New Testament compare? Well, the New Testament writers wrote in A.D. 40 to 100, between that time period. The earliest copies that we have is A.D. 125. The time span, only 25 years after the originals were written. And how many copies do we have? 24,000 who all verify each other. Dr. Ken Boa, who incidentally has a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, a Ph.D. from New York University, a Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Oxford in England, says this about the quality of manuscripts. While the quality of the Old Testament manuscripts is excellent, that of the New Testament is exceptional, considerably better than the manuscript quality of any other documents. Quite an endorsement for the reliability of Scripture. Yet it's God's Word. Isn't that interesting? It's God's Word that is constantly being questioned and attacked. Why? Because Satan continues to ask the question, did God really say? And you add to that man's own desire to not want to believe it and choosing not to believe it. So besides all that we learned last week about science proving the Bible right, and we only scraped the surface last week, and now the fact of the incredible reliability of the copies or the manuscripts that we have, the Bible is also amazing because of its prophecies, of its predictions. It predicts so many things that happened way before they ever took place. There are about 2,500 prophecies in Scripture, over 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled perfectly. What are the odds? We're going to come to that in a minute. But thinking present day, can you imagine, just, just think, think back, somebody having the boldness and audacity to predict the name and foreign policy of a United States president 150 years from now. Impossible, right? Well, in 700 B.C., Isaiah did something very similar to that. He predicted that Jerusalem would be surrounded and its people would be carried into captivity. And the prediction was fulfilled 100 years later. Then he went a step further. He prophesied that the Israelites would return to their homeland and the ruler who would set them free, this is 150 years before it happened, he named him and it would be Cyrus. Isaiah 45, 13, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. And guess what? Historians have verified that Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire, reigned from 559 to 530 B.C. and issued a decree on March 538 B.C. that allowed the Jews to return to their homeland 150 years after Isaiah's prophecy. 
Only God would have known that. Ezekiel made an equally amazing prediction about the city of Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon today. Here's what he prophesied. Ezekiel chapter 26. In verse 2, many nations uh, would come against Tyre. Verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar would destroy the city. Again, in verse 4, the rocks would be scraped bare. Verse 5, fishing nets would be uh, spread over the site. Verse 12, the stones of the city would be thrown into the city. In verse 14, the city would never be rebuilt. So here's what happened. Tyre was a city in two parts. Half the city was on the coast. Half the city was on an island just a half a mile off of the coast. The the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Nebuchadnezzar did indeed attack the coastal city for 13 years. It was a 13-year siege against the city of Tyre. And after the 13 years, he finally smashed down the walls. The walls were 150 feet high, 15 feet wide. And when he got into the city, the city was bare. Sounds like old Miss, uh, Mother Hubbard, right? The city was bare because all the citizens during that 13 years had all fled the coastal city and all gone out to the island with all of their stuff. And so there was nothing left to plunder when he got in. And since he had no boats, he couldn't do anything, and he left after 13 years. Then... 250 years after Ezekiel's prophecy, many years after Nebuchadnezzar, here comes Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great moving east to conquer the world. He needed supplies for his 33,000 soldiers and 15,000 horsemen. And because he had no boats, he couldn't get out to the island. But he wanted the city of Tyre to provide his needs. And they said, no. Well, he was so infuriated by that that he picked up all the rubble that was left from Nebuchadnezzar's devastation of the walls in the city, threw it all into the sea, building a causeway out to the island, marched out and destroyed the whole city, killing 60,000 of them. Just exactly what Ezekiel said 250 years before, that the city would be scraped clean and all the rubble would be thrown into the sea. And apparently, if you go there today, I have not been, you'll find people drying their fishnets on the rocks where that city used to be, and the original city was never rebuilt. What are the chances that that would happen 250 years after the prophecy? And there have been over 2,000 prophecies in Scripture that have already been fulfilled in detail. That shows the hand of God. But the amazing thing is that there were 332 specific prophecies given in the Old Testament before Jesus Christ was ever born that were absolutely and explicitly to be fulfilled during his lifetime. We talked about many of them as we went through the Gospel of Matthew. But from his birth all the way through the cross, his life, and then the cross and the resurrection. What are the chances... The 332 prophecies were fulfilled by one man, by Jesus Christ. You may have heard of a man by the name of Peter Stoner. He was a chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College in the 1950s. He wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. And in it, using the mathematical science of probabilities, he calculated the odds that one person could fulfill just eight Just eight prophecies predicted of the Messiah. 
And after doing his calculations, he said, and I quote, we find that the chance that one, any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies is one times ten to the seventeenth power. The number of zeros is what that looks like. And then to illustrate that in practical terms, Stoner used the following illustration. Supposing we take ten to the seventeenth power number of silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, they would cover all of the state two feet deep. Now, mark one of those silver dollars, stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state, blindfold a man, and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes in any direction, but he only has one chance to pick up the silver dollar that is marked and have it be the right one. What are the odds that will succeed? He said, that is 1 times 10 to the 17th power. And then, calculating the probability that someone would, could fulfill just 48 prophecies, not 322, 48, gave Stoner the number of 1 times 10 to the 157th power. Guess how many atoms scientists, scientists have estimated there are in the known universe? I looked it up on a number of sites, and the high end of their calculation is only 1 times 10 to the 82nd power. Number of atoms. Do you know what that number is? 100,000 quadrillion vigantillion atoms, apparently. What are the chances? Only in the hands of God. That in itself should blow our minds. This morning, I want to turn now our attention away from science and medicine and mathematics and archaeology a minute, because they all agree that the Bible is reliable. We've been seeing that. But I want to take a look at Scripture's own testimony to itself. We read part of Psalm 19 just before the message. We read the first half of the psalm earlier in the service. But listen to verses 7 to 9 again. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Since the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, I want to talk for a minute about what this amazing book we call the Bible can do in the life of a person who submits to it. First of all, it's perfect. Now, what does that mean? Well, just what it says. That's pretty straightforward. That Hebrew word simply means all-sided, comprehensive, so as to cover all aspects of all things. In other words, it's a comprehensive treatment of truth that is able to transform the soul. The NIV translates it as refreshing the soul. The Hebrew word is shuv, means to turn back or return, as in back to the original state. 
That's a transforming or refreshing. So what's a soul? Well, the, the Hebrew word is nefesh. It's, it's always translated in English as soul or life or person or self. It means the total person. It means the real you, not, not just our physical body, but the you inside. And what Scripture is saying here, that God's Word is totally comprehensive, able to transform the whole person. That's an amazing statement. The truths in this book are totally, can totally transform a person. Now, some people aren't interested in having their lives transformed. We all know people. They'd rather go their own way. And we know what Scripture says about that. It is going to lead to destruction. That's why God sent His Son, and that's why He has told us to go and share the good news. But this book, the Bible, is for people who say, you know, I, I don't have the purpose in my life I wish I had. I, I don't have the meaning or the direction in my life I wish I had. I, I, I don't know where I am. I'm not sure where I came from. I certainly don't know where I'm going. I have a lot of things in my life I wish I could change. I wish I wasn't so driven by passions I can't control. I wish I wasn't the victim of my circumstances. I wish I didn't have so much pain in my life. I wish my relationships were all they could be. I wish I, I, I could think more clearly about things that really matter in life. That's the person that the Scripture is for. That person, the person who doesn't have all the answers and who is saying, I want a different life. I want to be a different person. And the Bible promises to be able to transform the whole person. And somebody may say, well, how can it do that? Well, what the Bible says is that the key to that, and we know that, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That God came into the world in the form of Christ. Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for, for your sins, for my sins rose again and conquered death and now lives to come into our life and by His life transform us and then guarantee a life with Him forever. But it's only for people who want to be transformed. I say that because God's not going to force somebody. I don't usually like glib little Christian sayings. We have a lot of those that are out there and it can get very fatiguing. But there is one that works here. It says, let go and let God. Let go and let God. We need to get to the point of letting go of the lordship of our own lives, wanting to control it, and letting God uh, 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 take over, declaring Jesus is Lord. See, God's word can transform the whole person through the power of Christ's life in us, the one who died and rose again for us. The second thing he says in Psalm 19 is that the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Now that's an interesting statement. The word for simple in the Hebrew comes from the root word that means an open door. The Jew of that time would, take a, would look at a person with a simple mind and he'd say his head is like an open door. Everything comes in, everything goes out. He doesn't know what to keep out, he doesn't know what to keep in. They're undiscriminating people. Oh, that's a nice truth. Whatever turns you on, man. That's fine if that's your perception of things. Whatever you think is your own truth, that's okay. That's a simple mind. That's an open door mind. 
absolutely no discernment, nor discrimination, totally naive, unable to evaluate truth because truth has become so nebulous. That's really the typical person without Christ. They don't know what to keep and what to turn away. We've come to the place in our culture where there is no absolute truth. We've talked about that by which to make a judgment. So what the Bible says is that it is pure, that it is trustworthy, and it's reliable. In fact, the Scripture is so reliable, it can make a simple person wise. It can close those doors to, those, to their minds. It means that it can take the uninitiated, the naive, the uninstructed person who's undiscerning and make them skilled in every aspect of their daily life. What an amazing promise. It touches every area of our life. You want to know about relationships? It touches that. If you want to know about marriage, it touches that. If you want to know about work ethic, it touches that. If you want to know about the factors of the human mind, if you want to know about motive, if you want, um, if you want to know uh, why you do what you do and how to do it better, it touches that. You, know, you want to know how to get the most out of life. Do you want to know where, where you came from, where you are now, what, where you're supposed to be going, what you're supposed to be living for? It's all here in God's Word. It tells us about attitudes, it tells us about reactions and responses, how to treat other people, how you're to be treated by other people, how to cultivate virtue in your life. Every aspect of living comes into a person's existence is covered in the pages of this book. And it can take a person with no understanding and make them wise in the matters of daily life. Say, so, well, how does that happen? Well, it's not just from reading the pages. It happens again when we commit our life to Jesus Christ. The teacher and the author of this book then comes into our life, and then he begins to apply the truths to our life. Thirdly, it says here that the Word of God called the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the Hebrew is referring to setting out a right path. God's Word lays out a right track. And the result of that is that it gives joy to our hearts, a deep joy within us. What keeps a train on a track? I, I love trains. I used to travel on trains. I have train, uh, model trains in, in, our, in our home. The track doesn't deviate each section of the track is perfectly aligned one with the other. It has to be, otherwise a train will, will derail. Drives me crazy when my little train hops off the track. It's my fault. I've, I've not aligned the tracks correctly. And if our life is not following a sure direction, if we are not on the right track, on the straight and narrow track, our lives will derail as well. Proverbs chapter 4, we looked at this in our Bible study and prayer time this last week. Verses 25 and 27 says this, Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Folks, this is so important, especially in our day and age right now. Now, as I look back on, on my life, there's been a peace and a joy each time I allowed the Lord to direct me. Whether it's my choice of college, whether it's the choice of my wife, whether it's the places God took us within our ministry and our career, 
We never made any decisions without that peace and joy of God first resting upon us. With that in place, there was no looking back and doubting our decisions. Even when, or perhaps I should say especially when, we went through some very, very difficult times. During those times especially, there was still a joy in knowing that if God called me or called us to this particular ministry, in this particular location, He would never leave us nor forsake us. That's what Scripture promises us. Everyone wants a fulfillment and a contentment in life. Always searching for that. We were created to have that. And God provides the means for that to happen. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's what happens when we walk with the Lord. There's joy through any circumstances, good or bad. God pours out his blessing because of our faithfulness and our disobedience. Did you know that you can actually be happy and contented with life without sin? Without immoral sexuality, without drugs, without alcohol, without self-gratification at all costs. That's what the world is saying. That's where fun and joy and happiness comes from. You see, God made us and therefore He knows how we operate the best. And He knows what's going to make us most happy, most content, most fulfilled. And the happiness and joy that He gives us isn't over when the party's done, when we're falling over drunk. His joy doesn't even need a party (laughs) because it's already deep within. He also knows what the consequences of sin are and wants to keep us from those consequences as a loving father. You know, a hot stove really does burn the hand. Huh, who knew? The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Fourthly, he continues in verse 8 and says, The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Last week we opened up Scripture and we found that the Apostle Paul was right when he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. We sang it in one of our songs this morning as well, um, or the beginning of Psalm 19. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. There are people who spend a lifetime looking for the meaning of life and are scared to death of what's waiting on the other side of death. Now, if you've attended a funeral of an unsaved person and you've attended a funeral of a person who's loved the Lord, there's usually a marked difference in the atmosphere of that service. In one, there's deep sorrow often often coming from a place of despair. The other, though there is sorrow, human sorrow, there is an underlying joy knowing that our loved one is with the Lord. Benjamin Franklin has a very interesting epitaph. I don't know if you've ever read that. It's in Philadelphia, which he wrote himself back in 1776. He says this, Here lies the body of Franklin, printer, stripped of its lettering and gilding. It lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Isn't that cool? 
Folks, a guarantee of life everlasting is well laid out in Scripture. The only real meaning of life is only found in the pages of Scripture, but it's only revealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, 12, but when He, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. So the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes, but we need the Holy Spirit to do that. And fifthly, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. There's two aspects to the fear of the Lord. Uh, In one sense, it refers to the respect and reverence that's due to the Lord because of who He is. He is the Almighty. He is the Creator. He is the beginning, and He is the end. And this is the kind of awe that we should have of Him, the One who has loved us and has died for us, for Him who gives us eternal life, so we will continue to worship Him with awe throughout all of eternity. It's a wonderful thing. And His Word is pure. There's nothing to discard. There's nothing to burn up. There's nothing to ignore. But then there's also the second meaning or aspect of that same word fear. It can mean fear or terror of an awesome or terrifying thing, as in an object causing fear. And in this case, it would be God Himself and His Word for those who reject Him. There should be that terror, that fear. Therefore, if once they reject Him, they are condemned because of their own choices. John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because they have not believed. Their choice in the name of God's one and only Son. That's going to be a fearful and terrifying thing and will also endure forever. Lastly this morning, I I want us to see that God's word is true. And it is righteous. Verse 9 goes on to say, The decrees of the Lord are true, and all of them are righteous. That's pretty definitive. The Hebrew word translated here, true, could also be translated as firm, immovable. They do not change. Man, since the beginning of time, as we have noticed, since Satan first asked the question, Did God really say? has been trying to disprove the Bible and trying to come up with ways to explain what they see around without giving credence to what Scripture says. They have to. They have to come up with reasons because, um, because if, if they admit that the Bible might be true, then they have to admit that God may actually exist and they cannot abide that. Case in point, last week we mentioned the evolutionary scientist Dr. Mary Schweitzer who discovered soft tissue, blood vessels, in a T-Rex that was supposedly 68 million years old. Rather than considering the possibility of God's creation, at the annual meeting of the prestigious American Association for the Advancement of Science, Dr. Schweitzer explained how she has been trying, quote, to make sense of the surprising discovery. And the scientists are beginning to rethink a long-standing model of how fossilization process works. She went on to say traditional ideas of how fossils form do not allow for the preservation of soft, perishable, organic tissues. Not going to look at the Bible. We've got to come up and try to figure something else. 
She cannot allow herself to even consider or rethink her view that dinosaurs died 65 million years ago. So she now is on a quest to find another explanation. The answer is right in front of her in God's word. The words of the Lord are true, and all of them are righteous. Mankind is always trying to learn on their own. We've got volumes and volumes of information. You've got libraries full. You've got gigabytes and terabytes full of information. Always trying to learn, but never able to come to the true knowledge of truth. 2 Timothy 3 says, tells us that man is always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Why? Because they're not looking at the right source. They're not acknowledging God and not, and not acknowledging His truth. If we would just go to the, Lord's, to the Lord and to His Word, we would find the truth. We would find insight, and we would be truly enlightened. But if you're not willing to consider God's Word, then life can become meaningless. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a book back in 1938 entitled Nausea. And in it, his main character, Rokenten, says, quote, I want to find the meaning of life. So I decided I would try everything. He said, first of all, I tried love, but everything I loved, I turned into a sex object and destroyed. So I decided that it wasn't in love. Then I decided that life would be bound up in humanitarianism. And so I gave myself to people, and I, I felt I could love humanity. It was just individuals I couldn't stand. And then he said, I, I tried pain, and then I tried pleasure, and I tried thrills, and I tried agony. And he goes through that whole, the whole process and, and describes all, everything that he tried, and the conclusion he came to was this, quote, I decided after all of that that I was one more superfluous life, and the best thing I could do was kill myself. How tragic. How very tragic. People are looking for the meaning in life, for happiness, for contentment, for purpose, always searching, but never finding. Remember the Gospel of John when Jesus gave a very strong and shocking teaching about the body and blood of Christ to the point that it almost sounds like he was talking or advocating cannibalism. So you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Jesus wasn't talking cannibalism here. He was, he was saying that we have to get to the point in our life that we take him in so completely that he becomes Lord of our life, that he is totally in control. It is he that is living in us, not us anymore. And after that teaching in John 6, verse 66, it says, From this time many of his disciples, not talking about the twelve, but others that were following him, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? Because they were following to get what they could out of Jesus. They were following him because of their perception of who Jesus and his teachings were. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Listen to Peter's answer. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's why Jesus came, to give us life, 
to give us meaning in our life. And that's why the word of God is in our hands. Is God's word reliable? What do you think? The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Father, this morning we thank you that we have such a sure foundation. We have such a solid rock that we can stand on. And the world has been and the world is going to continue to fight against that foundation. They can't budge the foundation, but Satan continues to push and push and push, trying to budge us off of standing firm. Father, your word is true. It's all righteous. Father, I pray that as we hear from the world, that we would come back and compare your word and get the information that we have coming to us and make it conform to your word rather than being tempted to try to conform your word to what the world is saying. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be stronger every day, to know what's right, to know what's wrong. And Father, as, as the time continues to approach to the, to the second coming of Jesus Christ and things will continue to get worse, there will be lulls and there will be some, some uh, uprisings of betterness. But Father, we need to stand strong on your word and not be wavered in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, make us sure, make us firm on your foundation. In Jesus' name.